1: We live in a complicated world which seemingly gets more complicated by the day Political division is all around us and the spectre of a trade war has once again begun to stir amidst a synchronised but weak global recovery that's left many behind and yet to look at the world solely through the prism of risk assets all seems calm So calm, in fact, that equity markets across the globe have almost sleepwalked their way to new high after new high over the past 24 months. However, all that changed suddenly, three weeks ago, when investors were reintroduced to a concept which many had either forgotten or decided no longer mattered. This week, on Adventures in Finance, Volatility. Today is the 22nd of February 2018, and welcome everyone to episode 55 of Adventures in Finance. In a warm and no doubt sunny Cayman Islands, producer extraordinaire James, are you there, mate? Yeah, I am here and feeling rather extraordinary. Rather extraordinary. Are you going to tell us why, or is that a secret between you and whoever you tell your secrets to?
2: Well, no, it's just, you know, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, I'm left here by myself, but you know, where you've actually left me for is my own home country, which is pretty cool.
1: Indeed, I'm in the beautiful city of Cape Town, South Africa, although I am stuck indoors working on uh, the presentation I'm here to give and, obviously, the Adventures in Finance podcast, so I haven't actually had a chance to go out and sample the delights. But I can tell you, through the window, it looks absolutely glorious out there, so I need to make sure I get my work done and have a bit of time to enjoy it. Um, Not enjoying such perfect weather, I suspect is my partner in crime alex up in new york are you there
3: uh, i am and i will say it is actually freakishly temperate today so uh it's
1: freakishly it's- temperate how can <laughs> anything be freakishly temperate
3: well it, it's so beautiful and i'm like happy about it but i'm also like this is strange
1: so freakishly temperate okay that's like some calling somebody somebody deeply shallow um Well look, uh, enough of this, we have lots to get to and this week we are going to revisit a subject which uh, we spoke about at the end of year um, in 2017 when we spoke about things that we thought might be important in the coming year and one of those things was volatility. Now. Obviously, uh, it proved to be far more important than we uh, perhaps guessed, and certainly much faster than we guessed, given the events of a couple of weeks ago. So we thought we would spend this week talking about volatility, get a sense of whether it's back, what that might mean, uh, and and give people an idea as to how they should think about volatility as we go into 2018. Perhaps uh, it's over. Perhaps that was one little blip and we're back to normal. I doubt it. But our guests today are going to give us uh, a much more expert view than mine. We have a great friend of mine, Steve Diggle of Volpe's Investment Management, joining us from Singapore. And Dennis Davitt, who's one of the partners at Harvest Volatility Management. So two real experts to dig into the subject of volatility with. But before we get to them, we have, of course, our regular long short feature. And uh, this week, I uh, am going to go first. Alex, what do you think about that?
3: I'm okay with it. I'll, I'll allow it.
1: All right, I'm going to listen. I'm going to give you my long first, which probably has no place in a financial podcast, but to hell with it. I recommend recommended Baby Drive at once. Uh, I am long this week of Jennifer Lawrence. Now, not only is she a beautiful woman and is a tremendous actress, but she seems like the kind of person you'd want to ever be with. And the reason I'm long of her this week is because she has come out and attacked the Political Correctness Brigade, who. Um, Uh, jumped in on Twitter when they saw a promotional still from a a publicity event she was doing in London for her new movie. And the picture in question had her standing outside in a stunning Versace dress, uh, which is a beautiful dress. She looked fantastic in it, and she's surrounded by her male co-stars, all of whom are wearing scarves and hats and coats because it was freezing in London. And instantly the uh, political correctness brigade took to Twitter to call out the men for being ungallant and saying that they should have... Given her their coats and scarves and poor Jennifer was standing there and she's being objectified and uh, bless her, Jennifer Lawrence came out and said, look, you're all idiots. I chose to wear the dress. It's a beautiful dress. I look fantastic in it. Surely you've all got more important things to do. And there's far too little of that attitude around, I'm afraid, in this day and age. So I am long Jennifer Lawrence. You go, girl. I'm a big fan.
3: Yeah, to to see her in the coats and the gentlemen in the dresses... i'll, I'll nobody, i will i not finish nobody wants to see
1: that yeah. nobody wants to see that alex nobody wants to see that now you're europe long or short what are you gonna what are you gonna lead off with
3: yeah well i am so last week i was uh short being there at the olympics but you were I, now this week i'm long getting there I, I, there's an amazing story a bunch of people must have saw about elizabeth swaney of hungary not really particularly hungarian she actually grew up in california um who found herself uh at the women's halfpipe uh, event in the Olympics. Um, she's not particularly a particularly good skier. She actually didn't really do any tricks, which is kind of the whole point of the women's halfpipe. But she managed to get there by very cleverly going around the world, entering competitions in which there were less than 30 women or which some people would fall, and thereby qualifying as one of the top women's halfpipe skiers in the world by playing it safe. <laughs> And then by saying, but then by playing for the Hungarian team, which, you know, wasn't full up with Olympic uh, athletes that year or or, or, or wasn't full up with athletes for that particular event. For instance, the U.S. had six people who would have qualified for this event, but Hungary only had four. Um, So she found herself uh, an Olympic athlete, which is uh, very impressive. It's you know, some people get there through sheer, sheer hard work and athletic talent. She got there through some hard work and, and, and sheer grit. So I, I really, you know, she's getting kind of... And uh, some smarts. Yeah, exactly. And, and people are criticizing her. I, I think it's pretty admirable.
1: No, good for her, I say. I, although, listen, the Winter Olympics, to me, it begins and ends with the curling. I'm sorry. But <laughs> uh, for some reason, I have this crazy love for curling and, and it's one of those things whenever the winter olympics on i find myself watching the curling all the time and really getting into it and then if i turn the tv on in the intervening four years and the curling's on i'm, fl- I'm flicking the channel straight away i have no idea what it is about curling at the winter olympics but uh once again it's provided epic entertainment well,
3: well what, what do you say Absolutely that you, epic. what do you say that you me and james uh travel the world entering curling competitions and maybe represent the cayman islands i think that's a brilliant idea
1: yeah, but sadly, I don't think James has the stones for it. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's move on. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my short. Now, having given you um, a short that has no place potentially in a financial podcast, I'm gonna give you one that absolutely does on the short side. And I am short the people who vilify short sellers. Uh, this week, uh, a story about a story appeared in the press about a company called MyMedics, and some of you listening may be familiar with the story. Um, it's a Canadian uh, drug company and they suspended their report and accounts, which was due, they postponed them due to an internal accounting probe. Now, what does that mean, you say? Well, not much if you haven't been following the story. But um, the story is a very powerful one, and there is a short seller out in Sonoma County, California, called Mark Cahodes, who I had the great pleasure of spending a day with and interviewing at the tail end of 2017. Uh, He's an extraordinary guy, and he has been in a pitched battle with... uh, with the management of MyMedics, claiming that uh, the company's a fraud. And it's become quite the bitter battle conducted on Twitter and in public, and it's really got pretty nasty on both sides. Uh, Last week a story appeared uh, on Bloomberg, where I first saw it, about uh, some FBI agents turning up um, at Mark's house at the farm where I was a couple of weeks before uh, and leaning on him and his wife to basically stop the accusations that he was making on Twitter against this company... Uh, it was a very shady, very shady appearance, and the story is out there. If you Google Mark Cohodes, C O H O D E S, FBI, you'll find the story. It's extremely shady. And within a week of that story appearing, um, lo and behold, the company postpones its uh, report and accounts to an, enc- uh, to an accounting probe, and the stock falls 45%. Now, we haven't seen this play out. Who knows what could happen? Uh, there's nothing set in stone yet, but. At this particular point in time, as we record this, it looks as though Mark has been vindicated in his campaign to expose a fraud. Uh, maybe that's not the case. As I said, we'll have to see how the whole thing plays out. But, you know, it's amazing in this day and age that short sellers are just so beaten down. Everyone thinks of them as bad guys. And yes, there are people out there that, that, uh, that will short stock and then start spurious rumours. Um, But guys like Mark who are out there trying to expose fraud uh, and the lengths they go to and the the slings and arrows they have to face to get through these things, uh, I have nothing but admiration for these guys. And Mark is a a feisty, prickly character and he rubs a lot of people up the wrong way. But I think you have to do that in his chosen profession. So, Mark, if you're listening, kudos to you, my friend. Um, uh, I'm actually going to see Mark in a couple of weeks and I don't know how to get the story firsthand. But, uh, you know, it's... It, it makes me feel good when people who've been trying to expose frauds actually get their day in the sun and uh, all the brickbats are worth it. So this week, I am short the people who beat down short sellers.
3: Yeah, and, and by the way, I should just mention, for, for those of you who haven't seen Grant's interview with Marco Hodes on Real Vision, it, he, he's just such a fascinating, per- I mean, he talks about some of his stocks, but also he, he would talk to you all about his life and, and some of the things that have happened uh, and, and some of the, the you know, tribulations you have to deal with as a short seller um both both in, in life and, and always going against the grain but also uh in, in your portfolio it can become very difficult too so uh just just that, just want to throw out there that if you haven't seen that interview you should try to try to find a way to, to watch it
1: i couldn't agree more now you're short my dear boy what have you got for us this week uh,
3: i'm short apple now I, this is not a stock short because uh, I, I don't know anything but uh there was a, you can't
1: be short the fruit
3: no, well, well, I'm sure short the company in a way because there was a story in Bloomberg um, called uh, "Apple's New Spaceship Campus Has One Flaw and It Hurts." Uh, and basically, they, they built this beautiful headquarters in Cupertino with all this glass everywhere. Um, the problem is that Apple employees are, you know, generally keep having their heads down, watching their iPhones, and they are slamming into the glass time and time again. Um, which is, which is pretty funny, but what makes it really interesting is, and I'll, I'll just read uh, here, some staff started to stick Post-it notes on the glass doors to mark their presence. However, the notes were removed because they distracted from the building's design, the people said. So to me, uh, maybe not the best design for, for a tech company where everyone's looking at computers all the time, but also the fact that they kind of valorized pure design over practicality Kind of speaks to some of the troubles people have had with Apple products in recent years, where they'll constantly change plugs and this and that, uh, and it'll look nicer, but won't be so practical for people. So, and not not really the mark of of what you'd want to see in in a, in a tech giant they, that that it, it's all about how it looks and not uh, what it actually does.
1: Well, you're I did I did see that story and I did picture a bunch of people wandering around with their face in their phones, just walking into into windows, and I have to say. Uh, as as a spectator, there are few things funnier than seeing people walk into things like <laughs> lampposts and doors. I mean, it hurts like hell and I've done it myself. And you always feel bad laughing, but it's just one of those things that you can't help laughing at watching people walk yeah. into stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I, I, it's funny, that the whole uh, Apple thing, um, it's interesting. Like, I'm a diehard Apple geek, um, but even I have started to notice a few things around the edges that uh, that the products aren't quite as flawless as they used to be. Um, and, and some for me, that started with the Apple Watch, which uh, I still don't quite get. Sorry, Apple Watch lovers. But um, yeah, I kind of... I think I'm with you on this one, Alex. I think I would probably take your side of that one too and be sure, to, uh, be sure to have it with you. But now it's time to get to our feature story of the week and we return to the subject of volatility, which is something I have a feeling we're going to be doing at regular intervals throughout 2018. Now, as I said earlier... Uh, We left 2017 with the thought that volatility might be something that was going to play a prominent part in 2018's markets, and boy, were we right! Um, Within a couple of weeks at the start of the year, we saw 2,000-point drops in the Dow uh, within within a week, and we saw a huge spike in volatility. And so, joining us today, we have a couple of experts on the subject who are going to give us their views and hopefully uh, get a sense of what those events mean and whether they're the beginning of something or perhaps the end of something. And joining us first is a dear friend of mine, uh, my former employer, uh, Steve Diggle of Volpez Investment Management and Kit Trading in Singapore. Um, Steve, welcome back to Adventures in Finance. We catch you in a snowy Italy, I believe. I'm in Umbria,
0: where it has just started to snow.
1: Well, uh, that's the perfect metaphor for what we want to talk about, I think, today, which is um, the possible return of volatility. Now, uh, obviously, we saw a week, the likes of which we haven't seen really since, I guess, maybe August 11, or uh, if you want to eschew the debt crisis, um, or the, so the, uh, the treasury uh, crisis, then we go back to 2008. And a lot of people are starting to wonder, OK, does this mean things have materially changed? Is volatility back? And if so, uh, is it going to be bigger, stronger, and better than before? Or was that just a blip and we will get back to business as normal? What do you think?
0: Well, I don't know what business as normal means. I think that's one of the great problems all investors, particularly ones who've been around a while, have been struggling with since 2008, because what does business as normal mean? We were we, we lived in an environment from the 80s all the way through to 2008 when volatility you know, never went below. I don't know, eight to ten percent realized, and occasionally every three or four years would zoom up to thirty or forty or fifty percent annualized, and that was a given range. And, and and the last few years, we've seen this relentless downward uh, experience of volatility, um, which everyone found mysterious. And the mysterious nature of that very low volatility regime was compounded by the fact that globally in equities, and certainly in the U.S., which has been the benchmark, we had an environment where prices went ever upwards, and certainly through almost every uh, seasoned observer's sense of what was fair and reasonable. Now, every other time in history when we've had expensive equity markets, we've had bouts of extreme volatility uh, eventually, and you you see... Uh, you see Prices normalized normally with a blow-off in volatility. Happened in the 20s, obviously, with the 29 crash. Happened in 87. Happened in 2000. Is it going to happen again? We don't know. Obviously, we had this extraordinarily long, unprecedentedly long period where markets really didn't move a lot. Certainly, U.S. equity markets didn't move a lot, even as they got expensive. No one could work out why. Um and I guess we'll never really understand why then we had the events of uh, late January when we actually have volatility that pre pre prior to 2008 would not be believed to be extraordinary but only is extraordinary in the volatility ratio we had between 2009 and the end of 2017
1: so, so this you know now now we have actually experienced some some vol again. Do you think this is a sea change? Do you think now people really do need to start paying attention and, and and trade as though it is back? Or do you think it was just a blip and we will get back down to low levels, it'll get crushed again, and we can carry on as we have the last couple of years?
0: It's a really complex question, Brian. I think one thing we can say for certain is that this abnormally prolonged period of extremely low experienced volatility led to the creation of some very poorly constructed short volatility products, which were totally unsuitable for anything other than highly abnormal markets, and that those short volatility products definitely had a dampening effect on volatility. If you have a lot of short volatility products being issued, then inevitably that depresses volatility further. Um, through a normal market mechanism, those products have disappeared overnight. Uh, the XIV is the most famous one, but there will be dozens of others, not just Namur's and a few others, but you know plenty of OTC products that were these uh, very poorly constructed uh, short volatility products that were depressing volatility, and they have gone. That and they and they won't come back. Hopefully. Now that means that that one of the ingredients of the low volatility environment, a plethora of short volatility products, aggressively shorting volatility, have gone, and that will at least remove a significant ingredient that we had certainly in 2017. You know, when I say these products were poorly constructed, um, you know, as history has now shown, you know, any. Uh, even vaguely normal realization of volatility um, led to them being completely worthless. You know, you had several of these products losing 96% of their value overnight um, in a market that clearly wasn't a crash in any way. mean, you know, even after they'd lost, uh, you know, several percent in the course of a few days, we were still basically flat on the year. So any product that can lose 96% of its value overnight In an environment that is in no way abnormal, it's clearly a poorly constructed product, Uh, and no doubt there will be plenty of lawsuits from people who are persuaded to buy those. So that's gone, and it won't come back. All right, does that mean that we're now going to be in an environment where volatility will creep up again, and we'll see more normal, um, more you know levels that might might have been regarded more as more normal before 2008? It's possible. there's two there's two significant factors that I don't know, and no one really knows how important they are to creating a low volatility regime. One is ETFs. Clearly, ETFs and passive investment play a bigger role now than before. And secondly, algorithms. Clearly, vastly more of equity trading on a, on a daily basis is done by computers driven by algorithms. Um, so the... Does that necessarily mean for a lower volatility environment? It, it might. It might. And that, those two factors are still around and are in no way dented by the recent market uh, volatility. So I think anyone who thinks would, you know, that's all over, you know, now expect, you know, 15 vol to be the floor. Uh, I think that's that's probably a, 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 a big stretch. But two things. One is (laughs) the markets have shown people that volatility is not dead and that even in an environment of good corporate earnings and good economic news, you can have what is a normal event by any stretch of imagination, which is markets moving to what you present in a very short period of time, particularly after they've had a very good run clearly we've been reminded that that hasn't gone away and that we're not in an environment where goal is dead but are we in an environment where um everything goes back to what it was uh before 2008 probably not probably not so you know my very uh unscientific estimate would be that the floor is higher why because one of the factors of low volatility is gone um and also, people are going to think twice before selling vol at very low levels again. In, anyway, uh, given the losses they experienced doing it, uh, just prior to the market flip, but I don't think all of the factors uh, that have led to a low volatility regime are gone. Um, and the biggest one of all, and the one that has deterred me from buying volatility for the last five years, is that the central banks remain very much involved in the capital markets watching the capital markets and keen not to see very high levels of volatility particularly on the downside and what and as long as that last one doesn't go away we're in the environment where on average volatility will be lower and spikes will also be lower.
3: just just to play devil's advocate perhaps um, I, I, I want to maybe think more about your concept of normality. Um, it, it's always struck me as kind of odd that stocks would just rise or fall one or two percent a day and that would be a normal market environment when uh, you know Robert Schiller and other people have obviously pointed out that that's not how much the economy grows or shrinks in a day. I, I guess is it possible that we've that because of technological advancements and in and, and the way markets work differently and people perhaps invest differently, you know p- perhaps this regime actually makes more sense where Markets don't, you know, just rise and fall one percent every day.
0: It's possible, Alex. You know, but th- th- my experience of of, of uh, people saying, you know, this time it's different, you know, is, is that uh, usually that's uh, that that that's a very expensive mistake. I think it was. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, the investor who said the most expensive word didn't invest in this time it's different. It's possible. It's true, um, but. I remember in 2006 and 2007 being told by a lot of people, including the Bank for International Settlements, that the presence of highly sophisticated uh, structured products in the market uh, selling volatility would create an environment that spikes in volatility would no longer happen because these products would ensure that those best able to experience Uh, volatility were those holding it. And that turned out to be not only wrong but actually the opposite of what was true because those structured products actually were the things that ended up blowing the world up. So, yeah, it could be so. Maybe algorithms are smarter. But, you know, the other thing about algorithms is they've only been in the market for a very short period of time. And none of us really know What happens when they get tested? A lot of them clearly are momentum-driven. A lot of them clearly uh, leave a market when it gets um, in any way disorderly. So the fact that we've got computers doing all this trading shouldn't necessarily mean we're going to have lower volatility. And as in the flash crash that we saw, um, you know, uh, earlier this this decade, the computers may well be the thing that, that cause everything to blow up. Um, so I am far far from convinced that this time is different. Let me let me think of Let me let me postulate it another way. If you think about volatility as a market phenomena, things swing around. Okay. So that's what volatility means. But think about it another way. If you're someone who um, wants to actually be involved in this market, from a very first principles basis, the reason why volatility markets first grew up was this experience of underwriting, selling a put on an asset that you would agree to buy at a certain price for a certain period of time. And that's the historic basis of all volatility markets. Um, underwriting, And you can clearly see that that provides a useful economic function, whether it's shipping or stocks or commodities, to know that you have a floor price. Why would anyone, given these current prices, be keen to be an underwriter at cheap prices? <clears throat> you know, I look at prices of U.S. stocks, and I think, how much would I need to be paid to underwrite these prices? And the answer is a hell of a lot. In fact, an abnormally high amount, because the valuations are clearly very high. Yes, the economy is good. Yes, earnings appear strong. But valuations are clearly very high. So from the first principles of volatility, which is how much would I need to be uh, paid in order to agree to take this asset, uh, regardless of market conditions, for a period of time, whether that's three months or three days or a year? And my answer is I want an above-average level. Uh, Of uh, payment right now to take the risk of underwriting, not at the low average, even with the Fed potentially bailing me out if things went wrong, Um, you know, even with, you know, algorithms possibly smoothing out the the panics that human beings are um, prone to. So my first principles basis is I don't think these markets should be low volatility. I think because of valuation, it should be high volatility. And anyone thinking about shorting volatility should think about their role in one form or another as an underwriter of current uh, prices. I, you know, I think the vast majority of people recognise are very high.
1: Steve, uh, I, if, if I can, I want to take you back. You and I were in New York in 2011 at a volatility conference, funnily enough. And you were on a panel and the subject of... Vix and associated products came up with it, particularly the Credit Suisse ETF. And you, this was in an a and A session. You almost, as an aside, you, you know, you said, "Look, this thing is dangerous. It shouldn't be allowed to be sold. It's an absolute disaster." And and a, a, a gentleman in the crowd put a meek hand up and said, "I'm actually the guy that put that together for Credit Suisse." Um, you know, and you had this conversation, and uh, you know, you explained to the audience why these things were weapons of perhaps minor destruction. Um, And so what I wanted, if you can, for the people out there who've heard a lot of talk about volatility, heard a lot of talk about ETFs around that and that benchmark, to perhaps explain then what you did to that crowd in terms of why you think these volatility, uh, simple ways of giving retail investors access to volatility are dangerous products.
0: Yeah, I remember the conference very well, Grant, for two reasons. One, I was never asked back. (laughs) <laughs> um, after having said that uh, on the panel, and secondly, the guy who uh, who used to be reasonably politely in the audience sought me out um, at the at uh, the cocktail party uh, later and uh, was uh, much less polite. So the VIX, whilst everyone thinks of it as a simple thing because it's it's a single number that people are constantly quoting and it's constantly changing the basis around which that number is calculated is really very complicated indeed, because you've got a series of near-term options out of the money, which are always changing. They're expiring, new ones are created, uh, and so forth. So in order to calculate this number, there is in fact, behind the calculation of the VIX, an enormous amount of complexity. And realistically, It's not likely that the vast majority of retail investors, certainly the vast amount of people who are involved in VIX products, actually understand the mechanics by which the VIX is being calculated. As a consequence, it's very likely that people who are either speculating or buying these things for a purpose of expressing a portfolio view, especially around portfolio insurance, are unlikely to get the effect that they expect or need because they haven't actually understood the mechanics by which the number, the single number, is calculated. And that's before you start incorporating a lot of the phenomena of slippage caused by ETFs which trade the VIX, which are constantly rolling their exposure. One of the most uh, precious aspects of uh, certain ETFs, particularly ones that uh, deal with... um, Either futures contracts or options contracts is they are always mechanically rolling their exposure. As a consequence, they're very easy to game, and as a consequence, the slippage that creeps into them can be very high. So you combine those two things: one, a very highly uh, something that looks simple but is in fact very complicated, with also this need to mechanically constantly roll. Leads uh, to me to uh, strikes me that what uh, these products really aren't suitable for the vast majority of investors. Um, I've always advocated that if the investor has a large number of equities, that the best way for them to actually get the portfolio insurance they may want is to buy put options, because that's the thing that best. Protects the value of their portfolio. To express a volatility view, to protect a portfolio, is not a, not a is not a terrible idea, but it's not the best way to get what they want. And it it strikes me as not a surprise at all. In fact, the whitest of white swans that the first batch of volatility we have blows up fixed related products.
3: So, so just looking forward, Steve. I mean. With, with the scenario you outlined where you see stock prices as high, volatility is probably likely to remain high, just if you could give some general advice on, on how you'd look to um, you know, deal with the, the current environment and then uh, the environment that maybe you see happening you know, two or three years down the road once the Fed does really change course and, and perhaps isn't supporting the market in the way it has been.
0: Well, actually, I think, Alex, I mean, I think on that latter point, I think we have to say that from now on, not just the Fed, but the, the Bank of Japan, the ECB, sure. the Bank of England, they're all now permanently in the business of keeping a very close eye on capital markets. And a laissez-faire attitude that existed before 2008 is probably never coming back for a generation. I think, so whilst their hypersensitivity to, um, to stable capital markets is, is, is probably going to diminish... Um, as the economy is growing. Um, I think the fact the fact that 2008 was clearly both a disaster for central banks because they allowed this collapse to happen, but also a great triumph in the sense that they regard that the actions they took as saving the world, will mean that every central bank from now on will always be uh, watching capital markets very closely and be ready to intervene. All that really means is that the sort of levels of of volatility that we saw in 2008 when the VIX got to 90, I don't think we'll ever see levels like like that again. On the other hand, I do think that we're likely to see a higher level of average uh, volatility um, going forward. My advice to anyone who's looking at this as a way of making money is to try and understand the thing from a first principle's point of view, which is not to uh, short volatility unless you are either very confident of the value of something on a a fundamental basis or have enormous financial resources. I think shorting volatility because we've been in a short volatility regime and some of these products were paying, you know, over 2% a month uh, and that looked like sexy income, you know, is is a way to the poorhouse because, as we've just been reminded, even when things are looking reasonably benign, even when there's not a weather event or a geopolitical event or you know, anything to rock the boat, markets can, for whatever reason, endogenously just um, you know have these spasms. And the only people who should be short these products are very long-term liability-matching uh, institutions, especially pension funds or similar. So. I think there's no reason why, if you understand an asset very well, and you're very confident about the value, there's no reason why you can't, you know, write, um, put options on it, or if you own the asset, if you like the, the prospect of selling at a higher level, selling call options on it. But I think anything more sophisticated than that is something that really ought to be limited to um, people who have a great deal of experience and have a great deal of financial resources. So. You know hopefully this late, this last um, market shudder, which is really all it's been, should be a reminder of people that we haven't reinvented uh, you know physics, and that volatility will from time to time inevitably come out. And if this happens in in a backdrop of benign economic and political news, you know what could happen in an environment where we don't have benign economic or political news, or or or, or, uh, or geological news for them. I mean, anything can cause markets to revalue very rapidly, I and mean, it hopefully, is a is a warning to anyone who has you know, a large amount of short volatility exposure, which they can't actually necessarily afford, to reconsider what they're doing. Actually, on the other hand, I don't think volatility is going to go higher. I mean, I don't think volatility will go We'll go. Will go you know, to levels we saw in 2008 ever again.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably right, because if it does, <laughs> it's all over. Um, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to this day. Just uh, give the listeners um, a little heads up on where they can find you and find out more about Vulpez and, uh, and Kit Trading.
0: Yeah, Vulpez is an uh, investment management company based in Singapore. We run a number of products. Um, Including long-only biotech products, and we run some some farms which which grow avocados. But um, we also run a hedge fund called Kit Trading, which is a multi-manager, multi-strategy fund.
1: And the website I can remember this is volpesinvest.com com, so people can check that out. At the leisure. Steve. It's always a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in Singapore in the not too distant future. Thanks, gentlemen. Good luck.
3: Yeah, I think Steve's point about first principles is is a is a good one. It's you know, people chop every part of where you get returns from into a, a different component. It's easy to think, oh, this is just an inflation trade. This is just a volatility trade. This, this is just a rates trade. But the idea of thinking, you know, volatility is mostly puts. So do I really want to sell a put right now um, on on this index that's arguably overvalued? I, I think that's just a really nice way to zoom out and and, and something important, obviously, to keep in mind.
1: Well, see, and Steve's one of the very best at reducing things to first principles. That's something that he does all the time and, and extremely well. You know, you know, it's funny, I brought up that that conference we were at in, in New York a couple of years ago, um, and it, it really it was quite amusing uh, because Steve just tore into these products and the, this guy, as I say, so he was very polite on the panel, but obviously judging from Steve's, uh, <laughs> Steve's revelation, he wasn't quite as polite later on. But this whole volatility complex is... Extremely difficult to understand. And this is one of my problems with ETFs. When they boil down complicated ideas and complicated instruments into very simple cookie cutter um, shares that anyone can buy, uh, to me, it's just a very, very dangerous thing to do. They should, like cigarettes, volatility ETFs should come with a health warning. Um, but anyway, look, uh, moving on, we have another guest joining us, uh, Dennis Davitt, one of the partners at Harvest Volatility Management. So let's bring Dennis in. Dennis, welcome to Adventures and Finance. It's great to be here. So, Dennis, what I really want to jump into first, uh, the recent upheaval, let's call it, we saw in the markets, do you think that was a case of the markets causing volatility to spike, or was the volatility complex the tail that wagged the dog? Was it the vol spike that caused the turmoil in the markets? What do you think?
0: Well,
2: with hindsight being absolutely perfect, I can look back now and say with the utmost confidence that this was a volatility-led sell-off. And it had little or nothing to do with uh, incoming inflation or any worries about um, what was going on in the bond market or in the rate market. Um, and there's there's a number of reasons I feel that way. Um, at the time, it wasn't as clear, to be fully honest. But the the one thing that many people miss when they think of volatility is they always think of markets moving down in a violent manner like we saw. However... What people forget is the market moved up in a pretty violent manner in the month of January. You can even look at the, the markets right now and say, in January, the market was up seven, uh, you know, six percent in the S P. And you know, currently, right now, the market is down two percent in February. Now we were down ten percent from the high, but in the in the blind eye of volatility, an up market is just as volatile as a down market. And I would even venture to say that that that. that that sowed the original cracks in the short volatility trade was the up market in January, even more so than the sell off we saw. It weakened the overall volatility market.
3: So, do you think that that the volatility market has changed? I mean, we we've obviously seen the XAV go bye bye, and SVXY isn't doing so hot either. Um, and presumably, people who had similar sorts of short volatility trades that that we can't see because they're in the swaps market or what have you. Probably haven't done so well either. So, do you think we're starting to see those trades get unraveled and people saying, "Okay, well, that was that was fun," uh, but you know, k- kind of like bell-bottom jeans, saying, "Well, well, that was fashionable, and that was fun, but let's not do that again," or, or is this just uh, you know something you should see every so often, and, and the short fall trade is kind of with us from here on out?
2: Well, I mean, the short fall trade is going to be with us because once the pipes are built, there's always going to be water flowing through them. But I don't think the 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 Reckless abandon of the short vol trade that we had seen. Um, I, very, I very publicly have stated that this was not people, you know, we can talk about the short volatility trade causing what happened, even though that's what I just said. But the real thing that brought this market down was leverage of a short volatility trade. So, you know, you have an asset class that people levered up. I mean, the one example that we use to people is the, these levered short ETFs. If you look at their annual returns over the last five years, they were crazy. I mean, I think it was up 180% last year in the short volatility space. Clearly, there was some leverage in that. And the example we use is if I came to you with a high-yield bond fund and told you it was up 180% last year, but there was some leverage in it, would you feel very comfortable that that was um, a good investment to make or maybe a trade that you would take a flyer on? And everyone I know has told me absolutely that that signals enormous amounts of risk. There clearly is leverage in an asset class that yields 180% in one year. But for some reason, in the short levered ETN market, that was
3: not the case. So the natural follow-up question is whether the the leveraging of the short volatility trades became the the tail wagging the dog that led to the the anomalous uh, low volatility environment we've been we've been uh, de- dealing yeah, with it, for, it, for it people it absolutely- who work in news and stuff. But but yeah been been trying to rep, wrap our uh, minds around for the past couple of years.
2: Yeah, I mean the the short volatility trade over the last couple of years combined with the leverage that we've had has been tremendously successful. And then you pile on top of that, you know, success breeds more assets. So it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then you put the leverage on top of it. And and like I said, to sound like a broken record, it is, it was the leverage. Now those people have been removed from the market and people may, you know, ponder the question of, well, why, why does short volatility explosions in the market make the market go down? And it was really the way, the unique way that, that this all happened. The, the XIV and the SDXY being levered ETFs um, on the short side have, for lack of a better term, I call a poison pill in them, where if they moved in excess of 50% up or down in one day, the fund had the ability to redeem out of everything and then just deliver whatever hedges they had on, which is exactly what happened. So we saw, we saw volatility gap up, you know, 100% in a day. Basically, they didn't have enough money to reset the volatility structure um, down lower, so they just liquidated the fund. Now, what the knock-on effects on that are, it, and this is where it gets kind of complicated, a popular trade on the street would be to be short that ETF. So that short-levered ETF which show you're short are short on the market. So you're synthetically long volatility. So that was your protection trade, right? And then you would also go out and get short the double long volatility trade. So you effectively have no volatility exposure to the market. The market goes up, it goes down. As they rebalance these levered trades, the inefficiencies of the rebalancing procedure also created a yielding product. The, one of the ways I explain it to people is when that poison pill was enacted, and that ETF went from ninety-five dollars to five dollars overnight. If you're short that ETF, you realize the windfall, right? By because it, it had decreased in value so much. Now that that making money on that windfall, you then the next day have to go and cover the other side of it. So your your long volatility position paid you money. Kind of like a Lehman Brothers situation, where Lehman is suddenly gone, but you have exposure on the other side. Going out and covering that other exposure that you had on, <clears throat> in essence, going having to buy VIX futures that you were short against the position that just disappeared. That create that buying of VIX futures results in the, the people who sell you those VIX futures then go out and sell S and P futures as a hedge. So the chain of command out went down was the XIV blew up. People had a pairs trade on. They made money on XIV blowing up. But then in the act of covering were, where their short positions were in fixed futures, created enormous amounts of stock to sell, considerably larger than, than what people realized in pure, in pure notional terms. You know, people would look at those two things and say, oh, there was $8 billion of, of notional. How hard is it to, you know, rebalance that $8 billion of notional? And in terms of volatility, it was obviously a very big trade. So, and, and, you know, do I think that that is a part of the market that has now just been vaporized? So people who had those trades on that basically were doing carry trades, the carry trade blew up they will be out of the market for a while, but it's really more of a leveraged carry trade. I mean, you can say any sort of trade that has a small yield on it, but then you lever it up, and then when it goes uh, pear-shaped is the real dislocation in the market. One of the things we noticed was the VIX futures expiration for the VIX futures contract was an enormous amount of volatility to sell. So it was that that resulted in those futures going away. People who had to run in and buy puts on the S P X then went in and liquidated those puts into the marketplace. And that was, uh, you know, the the VIX settlement, which I want to say was last week, last Wednesday, when the actual C P I number came out and showed a little bit of inflation, and the market opened down twelve dollars in the S P and then rallied straight up for the rest of the day. So that to me is, like I said earlier, was my hindsight of was this a volatility versus an inflation? Absolutely. So as soon as the volatility mess was cleaned up with that VIX expiration, and then we got an inflationary number, the market rallied. So in,
3: in thinking about what what happens from here on out, I guess on, on one hand, um, if you remove this leverage short volatility trade that kind of re- removes one of the pressures downward on on volatility uh, in the market. On the other hand, it, it sounds like, you know, the rebalancing that had to happen as a result of the, um, the, the volatility surge has happened already. So, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, it, like, have we kind of seen at least the worst of the short-term move? Uh, and then maybe we'll see a, a more quote-unquote normal environment where the VIX, you know, stays somewhere in the 15 to 25 range? Or um, are, are there still people trying to unwind their positions who, who really went belly up in, in the, the volatility surge?
2: Um, I think the unwinds have taken place. I think that, that the VIX future actually was the exclamation point on on that being done. Um, you know, people, a normal VIX range is, is honestly between 12.5 and 17.5 um we should move in that range i mean let's not forget let's not forget that we were looking at you know a sub 10 vix so people were levering up short volatility on a sub 10 vix and it was you know that was in in retrospect it was a, a, a foolish trade but you know people said it was a foolish trade being short the vix at 12 and then it went down to 9 and paid people you know 180% return last year um i do think though that the the whipsawing the volatility of volatility um, has uh, is going to decrease going forward. I do think it'll be. I don't know when we'll see a, a sub ten VIX again, just because a lot of those those people have been removed from the market. And the other thing that, that it's another like somewhat idiosyncratic thing that a lot of people don't really follow, but but we do at Harvest because we're very much in the fall game is the spread between S and P five hundred volatility instruments and emerging market instruments. And EFA, um, Europe, and Asia, S and P had been trading at a deep discount to all of those. When the volatility, when the market dislocated on, the, on, on this volatility shock, you saw those spreads collapse. So, meaning you saw S and go up, tr- obviously a lot. You saw fifty print in the VIX, and you saw emerging markets and other markets go up also but not like they would if this is a fundamentally driven grab for vol, right? Emerging markets are far more susceptible to CPI shocks and inflationary shocks um, than, than the S&P 500. So if it was truly an inflation-related um, hiccup in the market, then you would have seen emerging market volatility lead S&P 500 volatility. That's why I think this is much more of a structural Volatility event led by S and P products and S and P products alone, and the original shot across the bow or the, the 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 first crack in the wall was caused by the rally in January, um, as much as it was caused by um, the, the the sell-off in in uh, you know due to in February, due to the, the, the poison pill of the XIB and SVXYs.
3: So just to, if I was putting my trader hat on, which is probably more like a trader visor, if I was looking at the next few weeks or the next few months, it, 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 that kind of situation where we saw this anomalous event that was caused by really a market structure issue would seem to imply that that you might want to be long stocks for the next, you know, little bit. You might want to be short volatility now, uh, now that we've yeah. had this event.
2: Absolutely. I mean, listen, the best time to sell hurricane insurance is right after the hurricane comes through. And we've seen a hurricane come through in a volatility market. The, the, um, yeah, there, there are great opportunities out there right now to own stocks and, and overwrite them and sell calls against them, you know, cause we're not, we haven't as much as people are saying the yield environment is, is getting hot. I don't see, you know, the high yield market trading at the wides. I don't see cross asset volatility. I don't see commodity market volatility going higher. I saw an enormous spike in S and P five hundred volatility, and now it's retracing itself back down. The market seems to be stabilizing. Outside of Walmart, I haven't seen any great big whiffs on earnings. Um, so fundamentally, everything seems sound. Um, the one thing that's 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 presenting itself to the marketplace is this. Slightly, you know, this elevated volatility uh, that we're in right now. You know, with 20 VIX, it's, you know, it's still two times what it was a month and a half ago. You can sell, you know, you can buy what you believe are good stocks and, and sell calls against them.
3: Yeah, following up on that, I mean, it strikes me, it this episode, ironically, almost points to the stability of the market. I mean, the the calls that, you know, when the XIV fell apart, which, which you know, people knew that would happen at some point, that when the XIV fell apart, uh, it would cause some, some major dislocation event. And, uh, you know, when the, the S&P fell 5%, all these people in passive investment vehicles would bail. Um, you know, there was even the talk of, of high-yield uh, bond ETFs like the HYG would fall apart in any kind of event because the liquidity wasn't there. In, in a way, I think I might be impressed by how stable the system has been, even though we had a, a weird couple, couple days or couple weeks.
2: Well, of course. And you had everybody out there screaming the sky was forming because not everybody understood what was going on. I've been trading volatility products for thirty years. And at the height of it, I was I was I felt pretty strongly that this was a volatility led thing, but there was so much other information coming out saying, Oh, it's a high yield market, you know, all these opaque markets that you don't see are falling apart. The reality was it wasn't. And if you really get in and look at the the, the numbers, it was a structurally led leveraged bet. That, that caused that, you know, the unwinding of which caused billions of dollars of stock that needed to be sold. And that once that runs through the market, that eliminates, you know, kind of the weekend. And if you believe in the stocks and if you, you know, you do your fundamental research and, and you say, well, this is, this was, a, you know, was it a buying event. I mean, people say like one of these days buying the dip is not going to work. Right. Well, I mean, as we speak right now, S&P's up another $30 on the day, you know? So we're, you know, if you look at S&P year to date, it's, it's, I think, slightly up on the year right now. So, you know, it kind of does, I always say that, that, that leverage is the most poisonous thing in the market. And you have to be really, really good and really know what you're doing as soon as you start deploying leverage. And you need to have some sort of risk management system because what happens is you get an instance like this where s p you know goes down 10 percent from the high but since you're levered and got in late you you're forced to liquidate you know you have five six times leverage now you're
3: 60 for for those who you know and this is maybe the adult swim section but for those who maybe want to take advantage of of some of these insights like where do you think the, the biggest dislocation is in the market now? Do you think it's just in, in the S&P 500 outright? Do you think it's in the volatility markets? Is it in the calls? Is in the puts? Maybe you could just offer some some insight there.
2: I think I think taking advantage of, of um, I do not, you know, I've been preaching that, you know, in a sub-10 BIC, you shouldn't own stocks. You should own calls because they don't decay. And in a bit north of 17, you should be looking at owning stocks that you like and selling calls against them or stocks that you really like going into the marketplace and, and figuring out a point where you'd be happy to acquire them selling a fully collateralized put on that stock. So instead of buying a stock for $50, go sell, go sell a put on that stock, but make sure you have $50 cash in your account so if, it gets, if you have to take delivery of it, you have the ability to take delivery of it. And doing that over time, selling optionality with the 17 and a half you know, that that spread of implied, that fear over reality, that implied volatility over historical volatility is always going to pay you over time, just like insurance companies. You you know, you, you've you gone from a buyer of cheap insurance on your portfolio to now you're in the insurance business, and you're actually selling insurance to people who need to buy, who have to buy it.
3: Great. Where can people find more of your uh, your insights? Are you on Twitter and such, or?
2: Um, I think I'm up to 39 followers on Twitter. So, but yes, I'm out there. Um, most of them are slow motion pictures of my dog. Uh, the yeah, I mean, we're harvest volatility management. We you know we're a twelve billion dollar asset manager. Uh, the portfolios that uh, my partner Josh and I manage deal with inflation and also deal with uh, hedge equity and risk premium equity. So you know we've been volatility traders. And you know my email address is on there. If anybody has any Sort of specific questions, I'm, I'm happy to help out and just shoot me an
3: email. Alright, great. Well, Dennis, thanks so much for joining us today. Take care, Alex. Have a great day. Bye. Yeah, I think there was an interesting counterbalance to Steve. Uh, the idea of of shorting volatility now, um, now that we've seen the spike and, and of even replacing your uh, moving away from stock replacement to actually replacing calls with buying stock and, and selling calls, I, I, I you know, Trade, the trade is not for everyone, as, as we kind of talked about with Steve with the short volatility discussion earlier. But um, I have to say it, it it's kind of a compelling argument that when when few people were talking about volatility, uh, it, it was probably a nice time to buy it. And when everyone's talking about it, it might be uh, hasten, to, hasten to give recommendations, but it might be time to sell it.
1: Well, look, ordinarily, as a contrarian myself, I would agree with you. But the trouble with this volatility is, and I think it comes back to these XRV products, you know, they can go poof overnight, right? I mean, this is the problem with these with this space. Um, and I think uh, you know, anybody playing the vol space who fancies a punt should really think of something else to do, like trying to cross the street blindfolded because it's just such a dangerous place to just play around in. Um, it, it's very complex to see instead. And, and look, may, maybe, uh, maybe Dennis is right and maybe this was a one and done. And I'm sure a lot of people out there are thinking so. You know, I I disagree. I, I, I just don't think volatility happens in isolation. I think it happens in clusters. And, you know, one of the features of the last um, couple of years of volatility, and this is something Chris Cole wrote so brilliantly about, was the speed with which volatility spikes got hammered down again. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how long, if possible, it takes them to get this thing back down to sort of, you know, the sub 10 levels we saw if they get it back down there that'll be interesting but steve's point about there being a new floor that's something i'm watching out for but anyway i mean look whichever way you cut it volatility is is not for the faint of heart um, by the very definition of it Uh, And anyone out there playing vol, I wish you the very best of luck. That's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Before we go, we have to give you a legal disclaimer. Uh, Otherwise, the lawyers will not be very happy. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. We will be back next week, and our feature segment will uh, revolve around something close to my heart, and that's gold. But in the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, we would love to hear from you. So send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com.
3: Meanwhile, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review.
1: Leave those reviews. James, what are they going to do? Leave a review.
3: I don't know why I said it like that. It's just I get really excited when I think about reviews.
1: There you go. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at
3: Real Vision. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for
1: Real Vision. Yes, we are. You can follow me on Twitter at ttmygh. You can follow me at AcesRose. Rose, and you can follow me at AIF James. Yes, you can. That's it from us. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you all next week.